One thing about impact is that you have to measure it. And measuring impact ultimately costs money. And that is going to put off investors. And it might put off companies as well. Getting impact data from any institution, whether it's universities, startups, large corporates, is difficult because it actually takes somebody to put a bit of effort in to get that data out. Costs money, costs time, and people don't do it. And some people, dare I say, might not want to know the answers. Can British University Research help families in South America secure a mortgage? That is what the University of Oxford did with its social venture spin-out Sophia Oxford, which analyzes contributing factors to poverty from the state down to the corporate level and helps companies make better choices for their employees. It's one of the successes celebrated by Mark Mann, today's guest. Mark started out in tech transfer at the BBC, then moved to the University of Oxford, and now he runs his own consultancy business, helping universities across Europe build spin-outs with social impact at their core. It's not an easy task, and raising capital can be a nightmare. Mark has seen his share of failures, such as his own attempt to raise a fund on behalf of social venture collaboration Impact 12 in 2020. But examples like Sophia Oxford show that these social impact spin-outs can have real benefits and can be a powerful force in international development. But what do you watch out for when setting up a social venture? How does it differ from setting up a social enterprise? And are those challenges the same in every country? Spoiler, no. In some jurisdictions like the US or France, social ventures don't even exist as a legal concept. Mark has advice for universities, would-be founders and Praxis Oral, the UK's Knowledge Exchange Association, which recently hired someone specifically to bring social venture spin-outs into the mainstream. My name is Thierry Hilas. Today is all about social ventures. So let's look beyond the breakthrough. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. It is a pleasure to have you and I look forward to the conversation, which will be something slightly different because usually I talk to tech transfer heads. So having you on, I think was going to be quite interesting. To start with, perhaps to set the scene, can you give me an overview of your work? Oh, they wouldn't want me to be a tech transfer head anyway. <laughs> so, I'm a, yeah, I'm a, <laughs> so I'm a consultant. I used to work at Oxford University Innovation, but I left there a couple of years ago to set up my own consultancy company. I provide consultancy services to universities and higher education institutions. It's basically around the things that technology transfer offices aren't actually doing at the moment, or not doing very much of, which is humanities and social sciences, commercialization and social enterprise. And I can do that all the way down to individual project level, all the way up to strategic level. So I can help with pro vice chancellors who want to change the culture within their universities, or I can help a knowledge transfer or knowledge exchange manager who needs help with a particular project. So yeah, the latest project I'm working on there is I've just written an IP policy for a higher education institution, which has been great fun. I've also got another company, which is an impact measurement company, which I've founded with two others, both experts in impact measurement and from different bits of industry and uh, government as well. So it's uh, quite a good team and uh, all sorts of exciting stuff we're doing there too. Amazing. That's the Divine Ox, the impact measurement. That's Divine Ox, yes. Yeah, doing impact measurement. And the project we're working on at the moment is we are measuring the socioeconomic impact of the ASPECT programme, which is the UK's social sciences commercialisation programme. Fascinating. 
as people will have probably gathered from this introduction, we are going to be talking quite a bit about social ventures, social enterprises today. Let's start with a big question and then we'll kind of go into the details. What are generally the big challenges around setting up a social enterprise if a university wants to do that? So social enterprise is generally seen in the university sphere as something that students do and not something that the academics do. So whilst there are lots of social enterprise set up by students, they're not necessarily set up by academics themselves. That's very niche. It's not seen as something which is to the core. So that means one of the big challenges is that tech transfer offices don't really know what they are, how they should be constituted and why you would do one in the first place. And there is an awful lot to know in terms of the way that you structure the company and how you get it funded and sustainable. And it's not easy. And I think the best analogy that I could draw would be where the spin-out sector in academia was for technology companies at the turn of the century. It's that sort of level. We're still sort of very early on in working out what we're doing in this space. So, yeah, pretty much everything. A massive challenge. Are there versions of social enterprises that you found work better than others as spin-outs? Yeah, the, uh, that's right. And so when I was at Oxford, I was, first of all, I led the humanities and social sciences commercialization. Then it became very clear that about half of the projects that were coming through sit best as social enterprises or, shall we say, social ventures to end. So social enterprise in UK is reasonably tightly defined whereas social ventures is a broader term. And I generally find that it is better to use a social venture as you're starting out. And if you want to be a social enterprise in the future, then that is better. But it's better to become one rather than to choose to do one right at the very beginning, because there are various constraints associated with social enterprises, which are not necessarily in the company or the project's best interests. That makes sense. Are these challenges unique to the UK or do you also find them in other places? There are challenges across the world, but the area of social enterprise, social ventures, it's basically if you imagine companies as a spectrum where you have the mainstream shares, profit-making companies on the right-hand side of the spectrum and you have charities on the left-hand side of the spectrum, social enterprises, social ventures sit in the middle and Depending on how your legal system is constructed in a particular country, the gap between charities and mainstream ventures is bigger or smaller. So in the UK and the Netherlands, you would find quite a large gap. So lots of different types of social enterprise, social ventures in the middle. Whereas if you were to compare that with maybe France or the United States, the gap between charities and mainstream businesses is actually quite small. So social enterprise isn't really a thing in France. You have your charity structures, you have different types of charity structures, in fact, and you have different types of shares companies as well, but not really social enterprises. So you have challenges, and it's that interesting mix, essentially, of making something financially sustainable and profit-making and, and also doing good at the same time, whether it's environmentally, socially, culturally. And there are different ways in which you can construct a company in order to meet the challenges. And it's sector specific. And it's also it very much has to be chosen to for the particular problem and market you're trying to address. Does that mean that if indeed you have spoken to people in France or the US, is there just no interest in this type of business? Or do they try to build those 
constraints into traditional quote-unquote companies. There is interest in trying to achieve the sort of ends that they're trying to achieve. But when you have charities at one end of the spectrum and shares at the other, and if there isn't that gap in between, therefore your activities become characterized either as either charity or purely for profit. And there doesn't seem to be anything in between. And there is just a lack of knowledge and education about the fact that there is actually a middle way. And you will find that people who are running mainstream businesses in France, for instance, are running them as essentially as social enterprises, because if they're directors of their own company, they can choose what they do with their money, right? But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's legally and structured that way, or they've got the protections that you would expect in the UK, for instance. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I guess you have models like a B Corp, which you can choose to sign yeah. up to wherever you're based. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's it. And that's the, the B Corp is, is an interesting one. It doesn't really work for startups, if I'm brutally honest. It's one of these things which is more targeted at the, once you become a bigger company and you've got an awful lot of momentum behind you and, and a lot of staff, and there's an awful lot of paperwork to fill in if you're going to be a B Corp. And again, it's not the sort of thing that I'd necessarily recommend as you're starting out. But I think they're wonderful things to do as and when you grow. Yeah. Speaking of paperwork then, what do you say to founders that want to launch a social enterprise and then immediately think of how on earth am I going to track the impact? Well, <laughs> if, if you're a natural entrepreneur, then the first thing that you should be doing is trying to avoid as much paperwork as possible. And don't make it any more complicated than it needs to be. In the UK, for instance, there are two basic types of company that you get to choose between, which is a company limited by guarantee, which is where essentially it's a charity structure. So you've got members of it, but there's no shareholding. And then you've got the shareholding companies, the companies limited by shares. Now, you should choose one of those. And what I define as being a social venture is a clause in your constitution or your articles of association, as it's called in the UK, in which binds the directors to behave in a particular way. So this is the mission of my company. This is what we're trying to achieve. And this is how we're going to choose how to place our resources. These are the principles by where we're going to place our resources. So your mission might be something to, for instance, we are going to focus on bringing as many people out of poverty as possible, right? So that makes very clear decisions on which type of contract you're going to choose for. You know, if you, for instance, I've got two contracts on the table. And you could bring maybe 20,000 out of poverty with this one or only 5,000 with another. You'd go for the bigger one, right? It's those sorts of purposes that you would write in. And what that purpose should be locked in your constitution, i.e. all the founders of that company need to agree a change to it in order for it to be changed. So it's a, everyone has the power of veto over changing it. That gives it a level of protection. Now, if one of those founders happens to be a university, in which case a spin-out, it would be the university which would protect the mission of that company. And that's actually quite a powerful statement to make because it essentially means that the university would have to agree to the changing of the purpose of the company. And what it means is if an investor comes along and says, to quote one, I had a conversation with a few years ago, oh, I love what they're doing, but can we take all this green rubbish out of the constitution? The university can protect them and say, well, no, <laughs> can't bully them. That's why the university social venture is actually quite an interesting concept because you have that protection that a university can give and it lines up, it coordinates with the mission of the university, which is, you know, being an anchor within its community and trying to do good in the world. 
and they can using social ventures as a spin out from a university can actually be a very powerful combination yeah that's i mean it's funny in a depressing sense that an investor comes in and likes a company and then goes but can we take all the climate and all the sustainability thing out of it i'm like well what is it that you like about the company then because that seems to be part of the core mission here <laughs> yeah it is and well <laughs> there is this thing about well it's very difficult to make money when you're setting out as a business and if a investor wants to protect the money that they put into it they're going to want to make sure that the founders are looking after all the pennies a depressing example for me is my own company's has a travel policy which is if i'm going to travel to anywhere in france benelux or northwestern germany i go by train and i will only fly if i'm going further than that but it costs me twice as much to do that than it would if i was flying and these are the things that everyone's balancing up and it's uh, there's an awful long way to go it's one of the big challenges yeah that's something that takes systemic change as well. Like the Eurostar shouldn't be three times as expensive as a Ryanair flight. But yeah, that's a choice. You know, when I go home to Luxembourg, I take the Eurostar and then I take the train from Paris and it costs me so much more money than just taking a plane. And I'm doing it because I have the financial privilege and the conscience to do it. But if I was lacking either, it just wouldn't happen. And the financial privilege is probably the one that would be missing first, I think. That's the interesting thing. And so now we talk, and, and again, social ventures are an agent for change here. We talk about the climate crisis and people throwing orange powder everywhere and getting very annoyed about that. But the fact of the matter is, if you are going to put an environmental policy in, in which poor people are not going to be able to afford to live, then it's not going to work. And that actually the social side of doing good is interlocked and completely connected with the environmental side as well. And I think that's something which is missing from the debate, the, the connection between the environment and people. Because if you're going to change everything, you need behaviour to change. And that's where social sciences is very, very useful because it is the study of how people interact with the world and each other. Yeah. Yeah, that's what those researchers literally do all day, mm -hmm. trying yeah, to understand right. why people act the way they do. On a related note, then, how do you convince investors to back a social enterprise or social venture company? Well, there are investors who are specifically designed to invest in social enterprises and social ventures, social businesses. It's a very small proportion of the market. It's, you know, it's a few percent. I haven't checked last time, you know, recently, but that's what it was a few months ago. They tend to be relatively small funds. They have impact theses which are targeted at solving particular problems. So it's probably simplistic to say, well, if you're a healthcare investor, you invest in any sort of healthcare business in which there's data or digital or something like that. There's an additional mechanism of a triage. Well, in what way are you making your impact? And that's an additional mechanism of triage that these investors have. And consequently, it's very difficult to actually match the right investor with the right company. When you do match the right investor with the right company, it's excellent. It's wonderful. The effect you get is brilliant. And the greatest success I've seen in the, where I've seen the investments so far has been individuals, high net worths, people who are treating it as philanthropy rather than it being an investment per se they are united in wanting to solve a problem that they really care about. 
in terms of the more strategic sort of social investment funds with principles and the usual, yeah, I found it quite difficult to get investment from them. It's quite interesting to hear that high net worths are crucial to this area because I hadn't even really thought about the fact that individuals would, you know, they've made their money possibly even with an impact business themselves or they want to give back if they had their corporation before and they want to help the planet now with the money that they've been lucky enough to make. I think this is how it's essentially going to take off. It's by those high net worths who are philanthropically minded, who are wanting to have a good effect rather than it being a financial instrument where you can invest and get an IRR of 7% or 8%. The reason for that is there's not enough data around to show that actually putting your money into social investment is going to return some money. In fact, I have to be honest, it's pretty much the reverse. There are certain, in the UK, you've seen that there's big society capital and they're a funder of funds. They were started by David Cameron's government and some of the funds are maturing, they're coming to an end now. And then you read the reports of how the funders performed and some of them have lost money and quite a lot of money. And you, I mean, they've had some wonderful social effects, but it's not something that you put in to protect your assets or to grow your assets. So in order to develop what is a nascent area, it's going to have to start with philanthropy. And then you get the data that you need to show, well, this is what is needed to make a social venture grow. And then you can actually start developing proper financial instruments where you actually are getting a return on, on investment and doing good at the same time. Do you think those will look like venture funds do now, even if they don't have slightly different metrics and, and investment theses? Or will it be a completely different model? So I think two things are going to happen. I think on that scale, venture funds are generally going to start shifting to the left. It's just the way things are going, right? Politically, culturally. Yeah. 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 And I think there'll be a spectrum just to reflect what you actually have in a particular market of the different types of companies. And the further to the left you go, the less likely you are to get a financial return. You're obviously always looking for the perfect solution where you have really good positive change and something that makes a ton of cash at the same time. But generally, the solutions I've seen, like social change, actually, it costs money. You can make something sustainable and pay for itself. And anything that isn't sustainable and doesn't pay for itself is not a company and therefore is not a social venture. It's not anything, actually. It's not even a charity. But in terms of returning money to investors, it's about putting your money in and seeing that money have maximum utility. So I think you'll have a range where you'll have the more like lower returns and higher social impact and lower societal impact, but higher financial return. And then people will choose where they want to put their money. Yeah, that seems reasonable, actually. When you were at Oxford, you actually tried to raise a fund for social ventures. I did. Yes. Yeah, I did. I don't think it had the success that you wanted to have. But were there any lessons that you learned from that experience? Yeah. So we, it was a group of 12 universities that I put together and it was called Impact 12. It still is called Impact 12. The, the club has survived me leaving and it's now very ably looked after by my successor there, Pippa Christophorum. And what we were trying to do, we had a lot of, it was Cambridge, Oxford, Northampton. Northampton were absolutely fantastic, very strongly supportive, as was um, Coventry to begin with and then at the end. And then the, Micra, so the Midlands universities. And we tried to put together a fund. We asked a 
social investment venture company to do all the work that was needed to assess the pipelines and develop a fund thesis and prospectus for investors. And we had just started that work and the pandemic hit. When you're asking people for money, you need to be in the room. You need to look at the whites of their eyes. You can't look at them through this medium. You've got to, yeah, you need the body language, right? So that was one of the things that I think killed it was, it was very difficult to go and meet people and shake their hands and try to do something new. It was impossible. And the other thing was that when you're subcontracting somebody else to do it, ultimately, if you want to do something new and bold, and you have to do it yourself. So you can't subcontract another investment company to do it for you. You've got to do it yourself. And I think that is one of the key learnings. If you're a university, for instance, and you're trying to set up an investment fund, one of the first questions that any potential investor is going to ask is, well, is the university putting its own money in? Is it putting its own resources in? And if the answer is, then the answer that you're going to get back from an investor is, "Mm, thank you very much, but no. You have to know where you are going to get your money from when you start fundraising. And I don't think we had a particularly good plan for raising that investment. And I think the expectations of the investment company and the expectations of the universities were different and not aligned. I think it was just a casualty of the pandemic, really. I think if I tried to do it now, I think it would be very different. One of the other areas I'd always want to explore would be the role of large corporates in this space and what they can do either to help the acceleration of social ventures, how they can pair up with social ventures to give them access to market and complement each other's products, for instance, and also in potentially further down the line as investors in acceleration funds themselves. I think there's an awful lot of our untapped potential and I have a project in the pipeline which is warming up nicely in London very early stages, but let's see how that goes. Watch this space. In your mind, would that be something akin to corporate venturing or philanthropy, let's say like the Danish model, where they set up a foundation and then that kind of goes out and invests in startups and runs accelerators? It depends. So, I mean, one thing that is absolutely core is the corporate is going to choose what the model is. It's not us. It won't be me. They'll have their boards and they'll decide in which way they want to do this. And then it's for the social ventures, the social enterprise to sort of fit in, basically. You've mentioned a couple of reasons why a university should do this, but obviously we've talked quite a lot about what the challenges are. But why should a university pursue a social venture? Why does that make sense? There are all sorts of reasons. The first thing is that third mission that universities have. And the impact from the research it can make is absolutely tremendous. So the first social enterprise, which was a spin-out that I set up from Oxford, is one called Sophia. I'm still on the board of that one, though as an independent person rather than as a representative of the University of Oxford. That, it works in poverty. So the International Development Department there, research into poverty, they go to the UN General Assembly every year. They've just left. In fact, they've just been there consulting. And they've come up with a measurement system of poverty within companies. So they started in Costa Rica and now they're covering the whole of Latin America. So it's essentially a company goes to them and says, we've got poverty in our workforce and it's causing us all sorts of issues. How do we sort this out? And so you measure the causes of poverty. So poverty is caused by all sorts of things. It's not just about how much money you've got. It's terms and conditions, the level of education, rights that you have in a country. 
and they come up with a system of characterizing it as a country level and then it filtering down to the business level. They measure it, they intervene, they say this is what you can do to make it better, then they measure again, see if it's better, and if it is, then they get a reward for it, a badge essentially, an accreditation. So a very successful business, creating an awful lot of data. The data is flowing into that company and that company has now spun out another company called Wise Responder, which I'm also on the board of. That is for profit, but it's returning any profits that come from it back up to the social enterprise of the mothership. And what they've been able to do with that data is to be able to model how money goes into solving particular poverty problems and thereby you can actually use it as a tool to consult with government, which is to say, this is what you need to do in order to solve this problem and maybe creating social bonds and things like that. So they're working with Citigroup and all sorts of companies across Latin America. So the impact it's having is enormous. And what's wonderful about it as well is that those who are into knowledge exchange on this podcast will have seen that there's partnerships there. So partnerships with business, you've got policy exchange, you've got commercialization, you've got more research because all that data goes back into the department and we do more research on it. So it has this wonderful positive effect of where all the activities complement each other and it grows and it has a bigger impact in terms of research, everything that the university wants to do. I've seen countless projects across multiple universities now in my my role as a consultant where I can see the potential of so many wonderful innovative ideas that can make a real difference in the world. And if that doesn't convince a university to do it, I don't know what will. Are there sectors where a social venture makes more sense than a regular company? I think if you're working in international development areas, if you're working in ODA countries, poor countries, it makes sense. You don't want to be seen as a ruthless profit-making company when you're going into a slum in Brazil. It just doesn't work. The dynamics are wrong. And the partners that you're working with, if the partners that you're working with were in it for the cause and not for making excessive amounts of money out of it, that's where you're going to get really good traction. The public sector, for instance, you know, whether it's healthcare, supplying services to the NHS or to local government, or, you know, those are where it fits really well because the missions are aligned, better aligned. Education's another one as well. Education, it works really well. Again, because that's largely in the public domain, it's a public sector thing. So public sector and international development are the big ones for me, which really fit. Do you think it could work in other sectors, whether that is healthcare or, I don't know, IT? Or is that just a complete no-go? As I say, I think there's a culture change where things are going to gradually shift to the left, you know, One thing about impact is that you have to measure it. And measuring impact ultimately costs money. And that is going to put off investors. And it might put off companies as well. Getting impact data from any institution, whether it's universities, startups, large corporates, is difficult because it actually takes somebody to put a bit of effort in to get that data out. Costs money, costs time. And people don't do it. And some people, dare I say, might not want to know the answers. You might not want to know whether you're actually making a positive impact or not. It's not useful. Do you remember when Boris Johnson did the levelling up thing? Unfortunately, yes. Never answered the question. (laughs) Yeah. Levelling up what and for whom? Well, the first thing that you need to do is to need to measure where everybody is in all sorts of different domains. 
And then you've got to put some money in. And then you've got to show that your money's worked. Pretty scary place for a politician to be, isn't it? So lots of risk. And it's a saving companies as well. Do you actually want to know how much damage you're doing? Or when you're claiming that you're doing a, a lot of positive work, what happens if it actually isn't the case? Yeah, so it's, there's that as well. But it's quite politically sensitive. So I think it will require a culture change. And I think it's going to be generational. Who knows? When I'm 64, it's not too long, but not as long as it should be. Um, when I'm 80, who knows? Things might be different. But I think when I'm 64, I think I'll be disappointed with the amount of shit. Yeah, although part of me thinks if the shift isn't happening fast enough, we might not be around to see the shift happen at all, which is quite defeatist. Well, there's already that data out, and that's, again, why people are complaining and panicking and throwing orange powder everywhere. We've seen the data. We can see the temperatures going up, and we're not changing our behaviour enough. For that, you're going to need social science. Yeah, you will. Praxis Oral is trying to make it happen across the UK. They've just hired... I'm not sure what his title is, but they've hired someone to bring social enterprise capability to take transfer offices across the country. What do you hope his agenda is, or what should his agenda be? Well, I think his agenda is to get things like social enterprise and humanities and social sciences commercialization more into the mainstream. And so, first of all, it's an educational job. So making sure that the heads of tech transfer offices know what it entails, what the differences are, make it more part of the day-to-day running of a transfer office rather than it being something which is on the fringe and nice to do when you've got a bit of time at the end, making it more part of the mainstream. And also just being able to tell the stories of the good stuff that's happened so far and also the mistakes. I mean, I've had a lot of success with uh, some of the social enterprises I started, but I have had some complete and total disasters, like trying to raise the venture fund and certain projects which didn't get off the ground because I didn't know what I was doing at the time. These are the sorts of things that need to be made available to everybody. And if he's able to do that, that'll be fantastic for everybody involved. Yeah, fingers crossed. Arnie King, his name is. Arnie uh, King, we'll that's him, it. We'll yes. give him a shout out. Yeah. You've already said you worked for the Beeb before, the BBC for people who are listening internationally, British Broadcasting Corporation, before you joined Oxford in 2015, where you then eventually took charge of social ventures. How did you become interested in tech transfer and what's kept you in the profession. How did I get into this mess? <laughs> well, actually, I think I probably need to, I, I'd probably need to go a bit further back. I mean, I started off at Cambridge. I was a physicist, that was too hard, and then became an electrical engineer, and did that as a PhD, ended up working in nanotechnology, filed a patent with Cambridge Enterprise in its first or second year, I think it was, of existence. Wow. Yeah, I'm older than I look. And that was an experience. I ended up buying the patent off of them and selling it myself. And then I started again and joined the BBC because I didn't really want to be an academic, I realised. And then I, you know, sort of learnt software and things like that. But I was getting really frustrated because all of the good ideas I was seeing weren't getting out. And, you know, there were all sorts of, you know, there were engineers both at Cambridge and at the BBC. And they were, I was just so frustrated at the not being able to get the ideas used in the mainstream. So, so it happened at the same time as me starting my family and I, do, I wasn't sleeping and I was looking at the computer screen and I was just seeing ones and noughts and all of it was wrong. I'd written it and I was too tired to fix it. And then this job came up in technology transfer at the BBC because obviously the BBC does a lot of technology development and I thought I'd apply for it. 
before somebody realized that I couldn't do any coding anymore, if I ever could. So I applied for it. I thought, oh, I'll just send a few emails for a living. It also fit with my <laughs> it fit with my frustration at things not getting out. So I thought I'd do that for a few years. And if it didn't work out, I'd go back to coding. And I never looked back. So I did that for a year at the BBC, got a few license deals out. And then this job came up much closer to home because I moved to close to Oxford at that point. Joined in physics, physics and software commercialization they wanted. I thought I could do a bit of that and uh, applied for the job. And it cut my commute down from an hour and a half to 20 minutes and, and didn't look back. And then they said at Oxford after six months, so you used to work at the BBC? I said, yeah. Well, they do English and history and stuff. And uh, stuff, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, we think, you'd be, we think you'd be really good at doing humanities and social sciences commercialization, and that's where it all started. Huh. Um, and that's, that's how I got into the mess I'm in now. And I've never looked back because, you know, one of the things that I found really interesting about it is having spent the first 34 years of my life being told to do science because I was good at it and then actually finding out that I actually really find social sciences and humanities really, really interesting. And uh, I've never looked back. So I've actually found it, I'm going to have to confess, more interesting than the technology. I just love the, the insights that you get on the way people think and the way people behave. And uh, it's been very fulfilling, especially when I had that board meeting with uh, Sophia. And they said that as a consequence of the intervention that we've made in this company, 28 families were able to get a mortgage for their house, whereas before they would have been able to buy their house. And you go, and they sort of they turn around at me, did the professor, and say, well, they wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for you. I mean, that just made me feel wonderful. And so that's the drug. That's the one, the thing. <laughs> that keeps you that, going, that yeah. That keeps me interested in it. Yeah, yeah, it's that. That's um, amazing. You know, I'm told of the exits that the companies, are, the spin-out, the mainstream, because I did all the mainstream technology stuff as well. And I'm told of what they sold for because they're starting to exit now. It just doesn't give me the same kick. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. I've sort of become immune, even just writing about it, the million dollar amounts. I'm just like, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the company's raised 50 million. You've raised 70 million. It just doesn't really. But yeah, so I'm like, oh, there's 28 families that have a roof over their head now. And you're like, well, yeah. Yeah. That's a concrete change that you've made in the world. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. It. That's why I think impact measurement is going to become more and more important as time goes on, because people are going to want to know these stories and they're going to be able to quantify, you know, when you do spend this money, where it's going to go. And so that's why I started this company, Divinox. That is what it's intended to do. And it's focused on, you have PricewaterhouseCoopers and the big four doing these big glossary reports for the big corporates, which um, have the money to spend on them and get consultants to put these things together. My interest is in the SMEs, because in the supply chains of these big corporates are SMEs, and they're not capturing their data at all. So I think there are some very straightforward things that you can do in order to get some data from even your accounting system and your human resources system and be able to convert that into impact data. And we want to fill the black hole of there's absolutely no knowledge of what the SME sector is doing in terms of impact. We all know that they're having a tremendous impact but it's not being captured. It's not being measured. There are so many wonderful stories to tell. And it's 50% of the economy. 50% of the economy where we don't know what's going on. That is a lot. That's so much more than I thought. <laughs> yeah. When you take into account that the big corporates in their supply chain have lots of SMEs, yeah. that's where it adds up. I'll have to keep a very close eye on Divine Ox. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see how it yeah. gets on. So we've got some very interesting early stage projects, and I'm hoping they're developing into something much bigger. Awesome.
What's an aspect of tech transfer or knowledge exchange that's become obvious to you, but that a new entrant to the profession would find surprising? I didn't know anything about starting companies before I started tech transfer. I was from 13 companies out of Oxford directly myself in the time that I was there. So I learned, <laughs> learned the hard way. And I was responsible for about, probably about the same again with uh, people I was working with in humanities and social sciences and social enterprise. So, yeah, just the way in which you put companies together, tax and things like that. So those are the things that I've learned. I'm going to have to switch the question around, though, because... Go for it. Because I think there's something that technology transfer can learn from the real world. It's in this bubble. And I think it's the treatment... I think it gets a little bit too obsessed about intellectual property. And I know that's what it's all about and, you know, filing patents and things like that. But when you're in social sciences and humanities, you aren't going to be filing a patent. You aren't going to be creating a piece of IP that you could put on a shelf and then sell to somebody. It's about you're actually building companies in the way that everyone, the rest of the world builds companies, which is you've got a good twist. You've got a clever way of doing something or you've got some skills. And you know you've got something of worth that you want to transfer to somebody. Now, you might need to protect some things further down the line, but you don't protect it at the start. You go out there and you sell your services. And what tech transfer doesn't really know how to do is to sell services. And say, oh, no, we do. We do consultancy contracts. And no, I'm not talking about consultancy contracts. Consultancy contracts where you say, I've got a clever buff in here, and I'm going to throw them at a problem, and then he or she is going to solve that problem and the university is going to get some money for it. Now, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about selling the same service over and over again. And I think it's got an awful lot to learn from the mainstream economy on that. 80% of the UK economy is services. It's not technology, it's services. So technology transfer focuses on 20% of the UK economy. Well, there's a much bigger economy out there. And so learning about things like franchises and trademarks and all those sorts of things and all the wonderful things that you can do with copyright they have the creative industries. Oh, there's an awful lot of unrealized potential there. Yeah. Oh, I did my master's in management and creative industries. It was 12 years ago, and I barely anything has happened in that time. It's kind of frustrating. <laughs> but at the same time, it's one of the booming sectors of the UK. It economy. is. Yes, it is. Yeah. The technology sector isn't really. The creative industries is booming. Why don't we back a winner? Yeah, true. What is something that you wish the public knew about tech transfer? Um, <laughs> it's an interesting. I don't think the public know about tech transfer at all, quite frankly. No, I don't think they do. Knowing that it exists for a start would be, um, and it'd be interesting to know the sorts of people who are in it and what sort of people that they are, and that they're not people who are trying to make any money. You know, the nice people actually want to make a change in the world. I mean, they're not paid an awful lot. The level of skills that they have, if they went into industry, they'd earn far more money than they would if they were working for universities. But they're doing it because they care, because they care about the, about what they're working on. That's what I'd want them to know. They're not administrative people who sit behind offices and process things as they come in and go out. They're really active, proactive, creative people who uh, really want to make a difference in the world. That's what I'd want to tell them. That's probably something that everyone would quite like to hear in the profession as well. If you had a magic wand, is there something that you would change about tech transfer? I'm looking forward to the spin-out review. <laughs> I think we all do. <laughs> uh, yeah. Everything, nothing. <laughs> I spent an hour, I'm not going to say I spent about an hour and a half telling Robin Paulding what I would change. I, right, this is what I would change. I would change 
I would separate the role of technology transfer and being the intellectual property police. There you go. I think in most universities, they are one in the same. And that is a massive conflict of interest, which the technology transfer profession has never properly dealt with. So you go in there, you go speak to a professor. Professor said, I've got this really good idea and I want to do this, this and the other. And, say, and then you have to go in there and say, excuse me, you can't do that. That's mine. That is just, you need to separate those roles out. You need to, and some universities do, some universities don't, for most universities don't. And I think that is one of the things that causes the greatest level of friction with the academic population is this fear that if they tell you something, you're going to try and steal something from them which they think belongs, should belong to them. And I think there are some nuclear options on that, which would fix the problem immediately. There's a Swedish option, but that causes an awful lot of other problems. So it has to be a compromise. <laughs> I think that's the issue. And it's quite interesting to hear you say that, actually, because I've had quite a few people on the podcast who said that when they first got into tech transfer, it was the IP police, and they kind of moved away from that. But it makes complete sense that the IP police function, so to speak, still exists because that is also the responsibility of a TTO. They still have to make sure that patterns are filed and the professor doesn't just run off and do what they want with their IP. But that's precisely the point. I don't think it's the TTO's job to be the police. It shouldn't be. It should be a different function within the university. If the professor is going off and stealing IP, that's a human resources issue. It's got nothing to do with the TTO. Yeah. It's not. It, it's, it's, they're not doing the job. They're, they're breaking their contract. It's something they have to deal with the line manager, not getting this random person in who's there supposed to, at the same time, sort of trying to help you and pull the rug from under your feet. You know, it just doesn't work as a dynamic. So I consciously, I can, I can tell everybody this, I've left now. I, I stopped being the IP police a long time ago when I was at Oxford. There were various things that went on which... You make a choice on and then you have to turn a blind eye to sometimes and it's actually for the good of everybody. I won't press you on a concrete example of that, but I think that says quite a lot. No, that's the, it does, it does. And it's, I mean, the interesting thing, but when you move into social sciences and humanities, the IP is weak anyway. So yeah. you can't file a pattern, for instance. A lot of the IP is know-how. So it's essentially copyright and it's copyright of what? So do we actually care what the IP is and who owns it, who does what with it? Not really, because it's not of actual commercial value. It's knowing what to do with that IP. It's actually the, the IP is between here and here. Yeah. And and creating a brand as you're going forward, and the brand is the IP. That's the thing of value that you're ultimately creating. And so that's how we resolve that issues. But again, I had some big disasters at uh, Oxford when I did have to be part of the police. Oh, yes, I remember being copied on an email. That was vice-chancellor, pro-vice-chancellors, heads of departments, heads of division. All the big boys and big women. Telling everybody what a bad job I'd done. Wow. What a bad job I'd done. On- <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, that was fun. Wow, that's a, that's a fun Monday morning. Get an email from the PVC saying you did a horrible job. Yeah, it might well have been a Monday morning, actually. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. No, and, and then they, they looked into it and they said I had done my job and actually I'd been too lenient. And then the academic eventually left the university, which was not a good solution either. But there you are. Yeah. And they lost you to boot as well. Oh, yeah. A few years later, I, I hung around for, for, <laughs> for a long time after that. So, 
I'm glad I don't do that sort of stuff anymore because it's not a nice position to be in. And so yeah. that, that is definitely something I would change about the profession. Yeah. That is almost all the time we had. Is there anything else that you want people to know before we go? Maybe where to find you if they want to hire you? Oh, right. Yeah, sure. Yes. If you wanted to, I told you what my skills are. I can actually do non-technology as well, but um, I focus on humanities and social sciences because that's where the demand in the UK is at the moment. We're also moving overseas as well, so we're doing all sorts of stuff in the Netherlands and Germany and possibly in Spain coming up as well. And so this is if you just wanted to shift your culture in your institution or if you just want to get a project over the line. Actually, the best way of changing a culture in the institution is actually to get the project over the line and just ignore all your policies. That's the quickest way of doing it. Get in touch. Case on social enterprise as well. Social ventures I did covered technology and humanities and social sciences as well. So the whole lot. And also, if you're interested in impact measurement, we're doing impact measurement for the supply chains of large corporates, and we're doing impact measurement for ecosystems as well. So, you know, what is the effect of a acceleration program? What is the effect of a particular department of a university? These are the sorts of things that we're characterising, which is great fun. So, if you're interested in any of that, give me a shout. I'd love to speak to you. Awesome. Well, Mark. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's been a great pleasure, as always, and I really enjoyed learning more about what you do on a day-to-day basis. <laughs> Beyond the Breakthrough is hosted by me, Thierry Hales. Our sound engineer is Mark Chatterley from In-Ear Production. The podcast is produced by Global University of Entering, a Morsonia Limited publication. You can find our website at globalventuring.com forward slash university, on LinkedIn as Global University Venturing, and on Twitter as GU Venturing. You can reach me directly at thales at globalventuring.com. That's T-H-E-L-E-S at globalventuring.com. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and go peruse our archive of more than 100 episodes. If you're already a fan, why not make sure to share this podcast with your colleagues? If you've already done that, thank you. And thank you, as always, for listening. Until next time, when we will be taking a look at tech transfer in the NHS. And here is a little snippet from that conversation with Tas Gohir. It is a very important topic that comes up often. You know, why doesn't the NHS adopt more new innovations? The first thing I would say is to SMEs, for example, looking to work with the NHS with new products is approach it in the same way that you would any other business development opportunity, you know, for example, in industry. You know, think critically about the real needs of the NHS. Think about what keeps senior management in the NHS awake at night. There's a lot of those things, you know, there's long waiting lists building up lack of funding you know where can they reasonably cut costs staff shortages there's a lot of critic and those are things that are in the minds of senior managers and then think about where and how does your product address at least one of those critical things don't just think about well this is a new innovation and the NHS just needs to adopt it because you know ask your question why should they they've got plenty of other problems to think about but if you address one of the critical issues then I suspect you'll get more attention